You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg P&L Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Now we're going to take a deeper look at some of the latest uh, appointments by President-elect Donald Trump uh, to his cabinet. I want to bring in Justin Sink, Bloomberg government reporter who joins us from Trump Tower, as well as our own Max Abelson, a Bloomberg finance reporter here in Bloomberg 1130 studio. Um, Max, I want to start with you about uh, just you wrote this fantastic profile of Steve Mnuchin, uh, a former Goldman Sachs banker who is President-elect Trump's selection to be Treasury Secretary. Um, What, based on his background, does he bring to this post? You know, it's exactly his background that makes it so surprising that Trump has picked him to be Treasury Secretary. I mean, to answer your question quickly, we don't really know much about what he wants policy. But what we do know and what Zach Miter and I learned when we wrote our profile of him for Business Week uh, just just a couple weeks ago in late August is that this guy has, like, the kind of career – it's almost like a satire of elite success. He was uh, he, he went to Yale, but unlike me, I was just a uh, I was just a reporter at the YDN. He was actually a publisher of it. He joined Skull and Bones. He became a Goldman Sachs partner, just like his dad. Then he ran hedge fund money for George Soros, the Trump villain. He invested in Hollywood blockbusters, and and he bought a bank with a bunch of other billionaires, uh, One West. You, you almost like couldn't make up a more perfect, almost like Trump villain, and yet um, he's the man Trump has picked to be uh, the next Treasury Secretary of the United States. Could you just add a little color and expand on the purchase of the bank in Southern California and what happened? When he was in his office in in uh, in New York watching TV, he saw people lined up outside of IndyMac, and he said, I've seen this game before. This bank is going to fail. This goes back to the debacle. The, this is 2008. Uh, the financial, this is the right. He said, this bank is going to fail. We're going to buy it. We're going to make some money. And that is indeed what he did. He gathered a group. Um, he bought IndyMac. He rebranded it as, as One West. And they sold One West to CIT for, I think, more than $3 billion. And I think that's going to create some issues in, in the Senate for the confirmation hearings because One West, of course, um, you know, they, they, they foreclosed on, on uh, a, a 
high amount. I think it was something like 30,000 foreclosures, if I'm, if I'm remembering properly. So people, uh, including Elizabeth Warren, are, are definitely going to be on his case. Uh, I want to bring in Justin Sink, uh, who joined us from Trump Tower. Another uh, nomination today from President-elect Trump was Wilbur Ross as Commerce Secretary. Uh, Justin, what has the response been like to that nomination? Well, I think uh, Wilbur Ross faces some of the same sort of criticisms that we're talking about uh, with Steve Mnuchin, um, he's a billionaire investment investor. Um, he's known for buying and restructuring troubled companies. He has close personal ties to Donald Trump. He helped him resurrect his casino company. But I'm sure we're going to hear a lot from, from Democrats and critics about some of his work on uh, industries like textiles, where they have not seen a lot of job growth come back to the U.S., uh, Ross is a, a critic of free trade, obviously. Um, that's something that's been pushed by President Obama, but the kind of populist swing that, that elevated both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, that, that might be something where, uh, where he is seen as having an advocate stand. Uh, Justin, maybe just give us also some thoughts about Todd Ricketts. Uh, he is a co-owner of the Chicago Hub Cubs and likely deputy commerce secretary. Yeah, he's the, uh, the son of the owner of the Cubs uh, has had a role there. And uh, one kind of funny thing that we've heard from a lot of... He's also the son of the founder of TD Ameritrade. Yes, exactly. Uh, but they've pointed to, to the kind of Chicago Cubs turnaround, their historic win in the World Series this year, is what they want to see Tom Ricketts do in, uh, in the Trump administration with the federal government. And so... I think that's a narrative that we'll hear a lot about going forward. Max, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about Mnuchin as the Treasury Secretary, specifically how it relates to uh, banking regulations. Uh, Mnuchin has vowed to strip back Dodd-Frank, saying that the Volcker rule is too complicated and difficult to interpret. Do you expect that there should that there could be a wholesale uh, rollback of some of the regulations that have been put in place since the last financial crisis? Well, bank investors certainly seem to think so because bank stocks are ripping right now. And look, what's so ironic for me is that Hillary Clinton's um, longstanding connections to Wall Street. Uh, you know, remember how much people talked about uh, the hundreds of thousands of dollars she got from from bank speeches. It was such a source of agita. I mean, it was really, I think, one of the reasons she ended up losing the election. People really distrusted her. They associated her with um, the financial elite. It was such a core part of the campaign. Donald Trump went around uh, calling Wall Street, uh, sort of suggesting it was criminal. Remember, do you remember, Lisa, the closing ad of the campaign? Yes. Lloyd Blankfein's oh, yes. face on, on Trump's ad, whereas Trump's voiceover sort of said, you know, there's a, a global cabal trying to steal your money. It's just so incredible to me that he seems to be so unapologetically surrounding himself with people who want to deregulate the big banks. I mean, that's what that's what rolling back uh, Dodd Frank would entail, and maybe they'll find a way of rolling back the laws um, in a way that maybe frees up small banks. But I certainly doubt it. I think rolling back Dodd Frank is exactly what J.P. Morgan, what Wells Fargo, what Morgan Stanley, what Goldman Sachs would like to see. Well, just to put some numbers in that uh, context, uh, uh, Max Abelson, J.P. Morgan shares are up one and a half percent. Goldman Sachs, uh, of which uh, Mr. Mnuchin is an alumni, um, up more than three and a half percent. Morgan Stanley, a gain of more than two percent. And I'm talking about these are gains today. Bank of America up three and a quarter percent. Justin, I want to um, go to you. I mean, it, there probably will be opposition from the Democrats. Uh, they are a minority at this point in Congress. What about from Republicans? Do you think that uh, there will be any pushback from the public, the Republican uh, congressman? 
You know, we we haven't seen a lot of that initially. I think actually a lot of Republicans are sort of encouraged that that Donald Trump has recruited a lot of establishment figures in. Uh, one person we haven't talked about, but but was named in the last couple of days, is Elaine Chao, who's married to Mitch McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate. Um, she's going to be transportation secretary, and I think that was a real olive branch to a lot of Republicans in the Senate. They they want to help Donald Trump and, and seem supportive, especially at the, the beginning of his administration. And so I, I don't expect a lot of resistance because Democrats have rolled back rules. So you, you just need a, a basic majority to get um, a presidential appointment through the Senate. It should be fairly easy for Donald Trump to get all of these nominees pushed through. And I think it's also worth noting that uh, Mr. Ricketts, uh, Todd uh, Ricketts, uh, who is being tapped for a deputy, deputy secretary of commerce, uh, his brother is uh, the Republican, uh, is the governor of Nebraska, Pete Ricketts. He's uh, the Republican there. So um, you've had a lot of familial ties uh, in the cabinet, at least to uh, serving legislators. And a lot of ties to Wall Street as well. It would be interesting to see uh, just how much uh, Wall Street benefits from some of these uh, new uh, members of his cabinet. Yes. Max Abelson, thank you so much. Finance reporter, Bloomberg News. Follow him on Twitter at Max Abelson. Our thanks to Justin Sink, government reporter, Bloomberg News. Follow him on Twitter at Justin Sink. Pim Fox, did you see? The incredible surge in Fannie Mae shares after Steve Mnuchin, uh, the pick for the next Treasury Secretary post, said that he does not think that there should be government control of Fannie and Freddie, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, yes. This is in a word. In, yes, in a I word, did. Yes. I, I mean, noted it. The stock is up. Uh, the stocks are up about uh, well, right now, a little bit more than twenty nine. That's just uh, since the comments were made early this morning. And I would guess that uh, Bill Ackman of Pershing Square is very pleased about this, considering that he's one of the bigger uh, shareholders in this. Yeah, has uh, almost 2% of Fannie Mae. In Fannie Mae. I want to bring in Joe Light, Bloomberg News reporter, covering this issue to talk about what the potential implications are uh, for these agency-backed, these agency mortgage insurers, essentially, um, and uh, how unprecedented this is. Joe, thanks for joining us. Hi, nice to be here. So just give us a little sense of uh, why Steve Mnuchin's comments this morning came as such a surprise and and gave such a boost to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac shares. Sure. So so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have basically been locked in government control since 2008. And right now, the government's taking uh, nearly all of their profits. You know, it's the kind of thing that's sort of been locked in place for many years. The Obama administration has said consistently that they want to wait on Congress to pass legislation to reform the housing finance system. And uh, Republicans themselves, you know, have consistently said that they want to see Fannie and Freddie wound down and and eliminated. So the, the fact that Mnuchin is going out there and saying, you know, saying that that he wants to see this issue resolved uh, quickly. So that's one thing that's positive for shareholders, that he wants to see them get out of government ownership. You know, that's another thing that could be interpreted as uh, positive for shareholders. You know, it's giving giving shareholders, you know, some hope that this could be resolved and resolved uh, relatively quickly 
where they've really really had none for for the last uh, last eight years. Joe, I wonder if you could offer the background about how Fannie and Freddie ended up in conservatorship and what they actually do, because there is no value in having a guarantee or even a uh, implicit guarantee if it doesn't come, let's say, from the U.S. government, at least in this context. Sure. So, so, so Fannie, Fannie and Freddie, I mean, they're basically the plumbing behind America's mortgage market. Uh, what, what they do is they buy, they buy mortgages from lenders. So let's say you go to Wells Fargo and get a mortgage. Um, they'll, they'll buy that. Wells Fargo has the opportunity to sell that to Fannie or Freddie. Uh, Fannie and Freddie will take that mortgage um, that you know, presumably meets its guidelines, uh, wrap it into mortgage-backed securities, uh, slap a guarantee on there that investors who buy that mortgage-backed security will see the payment of principal and interest, um, and uh, and you know, and and by by. Doing that process, Wells Fargo, you know, again has money to go out and make another loan. And I, I mentioned Wells, but you know, it's any, any any lender, Quicken, you know, small lenders, community banks. Uh, this is this is basically the foundation for um, for America's mortgage market. Um, so before 2008, uh, investors, you know, for the longest time, because the, because the companies are uh, government chartered, assumed that these mortgage-backed securities were as safe. To invest in as basically uh, U.S. U.S. Treasuries. So, uh, uh, so as a result, until they weren't. Uh, well, 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 so so that so investors assumed that that guarantee was there, and that made mortgages very cheap for the longest time. And then uh, once the once the mortgage market, you know, started uh, started to teeter, um, and lend, and you know, people went into default. Fannie and Freddie started uh, reporting uh, losses. Um, there was some concern among mortgage-backed securities investors, you know, especially in you know, like foreign governments, for example. You know, they're big in, investors in in American mortgage-backed securities. And once those guys started to doubt that the government would actually step in and um uh, uh, and, and guarantee and guarantee these uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities if Fannie and Freddie went under. That's when the government stepped in, took over the companies, took the guarantee from being implicit to explicit, and uh, and basically took you know total control of these companies. And as a result of that, as a result of the you know this bailout, the government took warrants to acquire 80, nearly 80 percent of the company's common stock. They took a new class of preferred shares that initially paid a 10 percent dividend. And then later on, the government started taking um, uh, taking nearly all of the profits. Right, taking taking the profits. And today, there's certainly profits for investors as the shares of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac soar nearly 30%. Thanks very much. Uh, Joe Light, uh, joining us uh, from Washington, D.C. for Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg. Prices up more than 8%, the biggest one-day jump since February. OPEC has clinched a deal to curtail oil supply. OPEC will reduce output to 32.5 million barrels a day. Uh, This really comes despite a lot of skepticism that these uh, that these ministers could come together and come to any agreement. I want to bring in Jason, Jason Schenker, president of Prestige Economics, who is in Vienna to talk a little bit about what the implications are uh, from this deal. So how big of a victory is the fact that they actually did clinch some kind of agreement? Well, I think that you know, it's it's a big victory, and not just because there was a 1.2 million barrel per day cut from OPEC, 
but that non-OPEC members also have pledged to reduce their supply and production by 600,000 barrels a day, with 300,000 of that coming from the Russians. So, you know, you've got not only ahead of the meeting was there skepticism of a deal, you not only had a deal among the OPEC members, but you also have a deal between OPEC and non-OPEC members. So that's a really, that's really the most bullish of scenarios for what was expected going into this meeting. Jason, is that likely to continue if you have the dollar gaining strength against many other currencies? Doesn't that end up negating any kind of cut in production and increased revenue for the countries that produce oil? Because they don't really have a lot of other exports to offer the world, do they? Well, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Because the countries that are producing oil are being paid in dollars, and a stronger dollar means they're able to buy more stuff in other currencies. A weaker dollar... Um, you know, with a with a fifty dollar price means a lot less than a stronger dollar at a fifty dollar price because they are selling those in dollars. So, you know, I think it's actually going to be you know quite positive for the producing nations. For the consuming nations, this is still a relatively low price, and there's a lot of secular trends that are going to drive consumption. And of course, if we want to know how emerging markets are doing, we should be looking at say the Chinese Saishin manufacturing PMI, which comes out tonight, you know, it had been um, in the last 24 months, in the last two years, it's only showed monthly expansions in four of the last 24 months. Now, the good news is three of the last four months have been expansions. In other words, that Chinese manufacturing recession, which is a, a proxy for global growth, seems to potentially be over. It's one of the reasons if we look at, say, copper, that that's been on such a tear despite a strong dollar because it looks like the global economy seems to be improving and China seems to be improving despite that strong greenback. Uh, but but you did, uh, Jason, refer to the sort of secular shift. There is sort of move toward cleaner energies, electric cars. Uh, some uh, have speculated that the global demand for gasoline will peak within the next decade. Um, how much can just simply a reduction in output really put a floor under oil prices? And how high can oil prices get from here? Yeah, so a couple of things. So the first thing is, you know, going into this meeting, deal or no deal, the question was, did OPEC members want to see a five-handle or a three-handle on the price of Brent, you know, today? And I think they, they came back in, and it's clear they wanted to see it above 50, and that's where we're at. You know, in terms of... You know, the secular trend that's more important, I think, is the emerging middle class in China and India and other Asia. That's where 71 percent of oil demand growth is going to come from uh, through 2040 for the next 25-ish years uh, based on OPEC's own research, right? That's, that's probably a bigger trend than the, you know, zero-emission vehicles, electric cars and the like. Uh, even the EIA's numbers show that in a decade, you're looking at only a million vehicles sold per month. That's still a relatively low number, uh, you know, for thinking about how many cars are going to be sold 10 years from now. Jason, you know, we've had deals in the past uh, from OPEC, and indeed uh, OPEC changes its uh, disposition. Indonesia, for example, wasn't able to vote in this because they are now an importer of uh, of oil. Uh, what... Um, uh, what do you see for uh, for the future? I mean, do you think they're going to make this deal stick? What makes it different than the last deal? So there's a couple of things. So one, Saudi Arabia tends to stick to the deals that are made. 
So um, maybe not all these barrels will come out of the market. So maybe we don't get all 1.2 or 1.8 if we add in the non-OPEC production. But maybe we get a million of the 1.8 or maybe we get 800,000. It's still a meaningful production even if we don't get all of it. And I think if, you know, what it's really doing here is supporting prices through the winter until you can get to that U.S. driving season where the big demand comes in, right? So the day that OPEC's really looking at is in the same way that, that in the summer driving season ended on July 20th, the summer driving season for 2017 really for refineries begins on the 21st of February when that March WTI NYMEX contract closes and the next contract traded as prompt is the April NYMEX WTI. All right, so we got to we got to maintain and we got to look at that and also uh, well it's not even waiting for July to move higher. Uh, NYMEX crude right now up uh, more than eight and a half percent, forty nine dollars eight cents a barrel. Thank you very much, uh, Jason Schenker, Prestige Economics President, joining us from Vienna. Gold down the most this month since 2013. Uh, with us, we are lucky to have Axel Merck, President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments here in rainy New York from the beautiful San Francisco. Uh, I apologize for the weather here, uh, Axel. Um, we appreciate you being here. I want to make sense of gold. Uh, late last year, you were talking about how gold could play an important role in somebody's portfolio due to all the uncertainty uh, with the economic and uh, monetary policy backdrop. What's changed? Well, we had an election, and uh, that's been the key driver. And, and so the type of investment in gold is, I believe, shifting. Um, gold has always been a diversifier in our view. Correlation to equities is near zero, although of late it's been elevated to bonds. That's going to fizzle out again. Now, one key competitor or the key competitor to gold is cash. If you earn a real rate of return on cash, why should you own a brick that's just going to cost you to own money? And uh, interest rates may be inching up, but at the same time, the Fed is likely to be behind the curve, so that's not really a competitor. But what might be a competitor is if indeed um, barriers to investments go down, if the House GOP tax plan um, is coming to fruition, where suddenly you can deduct investments the first year, that's going to shift the U.S. economy more towards an investment-driven economy rather than a consumption-driven economy. Those things are negative for gold. Now, that said, this is all done on the backdrop of very high valuations, and so volatility is likely to come into the markets, in our view anyway. And so in that environment, gold should do very well. So it's going to be a different type of investor. It's going to be more the diversifying investor that's going to buy gold, and some of the folks who are spooked about rising rates are, are getting out of gold. Axel, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the U.S. dollar and its relationship to interest rates, but in the context of a statement that was made uh, at, uh, I believe it was with the Robin Hood Foundation uh, uh, confab, billionaire uh, Stan, uh, Stanley Druckenmiller says that he's bullish on the U.S. economy and so on, but he says much stronger U.S. dollar and higher bond yields. Well, that's the question. Why are the bond yields rising and so forth, right? And uh, is the glass half full or half empty? Are rates going up because inflation is creeping into the system because we got wage pressures or because we're going to make America great again and we're going to have all these investment opportunities? Um, ultimately, uh, the, the real life is going to look more grayish. Um, the dollar historically benefits from the anticipation of higher rates when actually higher rates come. They don't necessarily go up. And one, one reason these, these sort of uh, theories come up is because we compare 
compared him to the early 80s when Reagan come, came in and had a lot of reforms. The key difference is that at the time, inflation was high and unemployment was uh, was high. Now inflation is very low. Asset prices are very high as well. And so that creates very different dynamics. Um, the U.S. dollar index is already hugely about two standard deviations over its, its moving average, depending on the type of index you're using. And so a lot of good news is priced into it. And one of the things that has shifted, the dollar is no longer the prime funding currency of choice. The euro takes that role now. So if you think that we're going to have turbulence in the markets, I wouldn't bet on the dollar necessarily doing the best. That's very controversial because historically the dollar does, of course, well. But if indeed yields go up because we have such great growth prospects, by all means. But if at the same time the bonds are selling off because we're going to get more inflation, because it's easier to get the fiscal spending done than the structural reform, then no, I don't think the dollar is necessarily going to be strong. You know, Axel, I was, I was talking with a number of investment managers. You said earlier, well, we had an election and that, that changed a lot, right? Um, and I've been speaking with a lot of investment managers who are saying, you know, we really don't know now what our view for next year is. And we're very uh, tentative with any of our calls. Do you have more conviction? And, and what is your highest conviction call? Well, volatility is my highest conviction call. Um, the, I mean, clearly, the market has made a choice here, right? And the glass is half full, and uh, we are reducing barriers, regulatory barriers, and that means that the barrier to entry is reduced. That's good for small business. That makes big business less competitive, and those are very highly valued. And so, yes, there are a lot of changes happening. Uh, my key conviction is that risk premium that have been compressed, if bond yields go up, those will rise, and that's bad for risk assets. And so my general theme is negative carry ideas are going to prevail. The problem, of course, is if you sit on them for too long, you're going to lose money. And gold, by the way, is one of the less expensive negative carries. Uh, just to be more specific, when you say the risk assets will suffer, you're talking junk bonds, emerging market bonds. Are you talking stocks as well? Everything. Yes. Um, everything has been going up uh, indiscriminately. That's been part of the problem. And we're going to see a greater risk dispersion, which also means that active management is going to come back. Um, because the, in the past years, the best thing uh, you could have done is not to think, to just go with the market. As we have uncertainty, what I think is Trump is going to delegate a lot, and then he's going to start a Twitter war with this or that guy. And so that uh, you have to look through that and then look at, well, what are the big themes that are going to come in? But as part of the process, uncertainty is going to go up. And when, when the, the House GOP plan, for example, wants to make inputs no longer tax deductible, well, the WTO is going to have a say in that. Uh, lots of lobbyists are going to have a say in that. It's going to be watered down. So there's going to be a lot of big back and forth. Ultimately, it's very easy to spend money because you're going to allow somebody to build a bridge to nowhere if I can build my wall. But the structural reforms, the tax reforms are going to be far, far more difficult. And, and that's going to be plenty of food for, for volatility. And volatility is bad when, when perfection is priced into the markets. Well, we're going to have to wait and see what happens. Uh, I want to thank you very much. Uh, an alternative call, a contrary call there. Uh, Axel Merck, much appreciated. Axel Merck is the president and the chief executive of Merck Investments, giving us his thoughts on the dollar and gold and risk asset. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, 
a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.